turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to continue on our sermon series on the book of Acts. Um, some of you guys, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about some strange stuff like speaking in tongues. And for some of you Georgia fans, you probably experienced that last night, running around your house in circles as you barely escaped Notre Dame. Anyway, I know, I just, all you just zoned out. Um, Acts chapter 2, we're, if you remember last week, if you were here, uh, we, we started in Acts chapter 1, and, and, and one of the things I told you is the book of Acts and the book of Luke is, it's really a two-part series that Luke talks in the, book, the gospel of Luke about all Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And then in the book of Acts, he tells the same guy, a guy named Theophilus, who is a skeptic that Luke is trying to prove Jesus' existence to, that Jesus, even though he rose from the dead, he's not done. He, he began to do and teach, which, which again, um, it, it really means that Jesus isn't done. He's not done teaching. You're going to see that through the entire book of Acts, that God in, his, in the flesh, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to do some crazy ordinary things. Let me give you one example of this before we jump ahead. But like um, Paul, the apostle Paul on the Damascus road, which is a famous story, a guy named Saul who was persecuting the church, it says he was blinded. But do you remember who it says blinded him? Jesus. Remember that. He says, Lord, Lord, why are you, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. So not only is is he ascended into heaven, but he's going to continue to show up all the way through the book of Acts, and he's going to fulfill what he started. But the main point, and the main thing I want you to see is as we look at the book of Acts, where, where does Jesus primarily teach now is through his church. That's what we looked at last week, and you're going to see this week as well. So let me start with a little introduction. On September 23rd, 1857, a guy named Jeremy Lanfear uh, showed up in New York City to start a prayer gathering. Now this brother, he probably, he uh, publicized as much as he could. He invited all of his friends. Like, he got the word out. So he, he, he's thinking in his mind, okay, if God moves through the power of prayer, we need to start praying. So he, he's praying, he's thinking about it, and then uh, Monday morning shows up, the clock strikes noon, and six people come to his gathering. Kind of reminds me of our Monday morning prayer gathering. Uh, no, just kidding. Obviously, yeah, if you think about it, this brother, he's disappointed, Right? You'd be disappointed too. You think your life's work is put into this gathering. You pray. You work really hard. You do everything you're supposed to do, and six people show up. So he kept doing it. Week after week after week, and week after week after week, no one came. But he didn't give up. But you know what? Something crazy ends up happening, okay? On October 10th of the year, six months later, the stock market crashed in the U.S. And it said that week when the stock market crashed, 10,000 people showed up at his prayer gathering in New York City. Not only did 10,000 people show up there, but it, it caught on. Historians tell us that people started gathering in St. Louis and it all over the country because of this guy's prayer gathering. Historians tell us that you can actually trace back the great awakening in American history to this guy in this prayer gathering who believed God and he showed up and six people showed up and he kept doing it over and over and over again. And then thousands of people show up and the gospel spreads all across America through one guy and his faithfulness. Guys, the reason why I say this is imagine, seriously, imagine what could happen in our city if we had a few people who believe that God can move and they begged him to do it? Over and over again, all day long, they just begged God and they were consistent in it. What you're going to see today in Acts chapter 2 is that there were a small group of men who experienced the goodness of God and they believed God for something more. 
If you remember this last week, there were 11 disciples who were sitting in a room waiting on God to move. So historians, again, will tell us that right now there's about 120 people. That's a relatively small group when you think about the entire world who believe God. Something incredible happens, and in one day, 3,000 people come to faith. That's how God works. When a small group of people believe God, God tends to move. Here's my question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as we open up God's word today, do you believe that it only takes a small group of people who are willing to see God move? Honestly, this is what we talked about last week when I told you what the name church actually means. It's a Greek word. It's two Greek words put together, ekklesia, which means a set-apart movement. That God's church is not a building. It's not a school. It's not a gymnasium. gymnasium. It's a movement of people who come together, believe God for something great, and God moves. So that's where we're going. Acts chapter 2. You're going to see this really clearly today. Disclaimer. There's a lot of weird things happening here. Honestly, that's why I titled the message. It's about to get weird, right? If I can confess to you, let me just be honest. There are certain messages that as a pastor, you wake up on Monday morning and you're excited to write. This is not one of them. I'll be honest. Speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit was the thing that I was like, oh, I just want to skip this, but I couldn't. I couldn't skip. Do you know why I can't skip? Honestly, I wrote this down. I can't skip because I'm a Bible teacher and I believe that God's words are ultimate authority. So here we go. Right? God's text says it. It's good. So my goal is by the end of the day, you would see the goodness of God in this text, and you would see God's amazing, loving kindness towards you. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived. All right, real quick, Pentecost, right? For a lot of you, you may not know what this is. It's a Jewish festival that came after a massive festival called Passover. So if you remember, in the Old Testament, there was this event called the Passover in the book of Exodus where God passed over the nation of Israel and he didn't kill their firstborn because they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, which signified God's substitutionary atonement, that God was satisfying that. So this thing called the Passover's first. There were three Jewish festivals that the Jewish people would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. The first one was the Passover. The second one, they would first fruits, and the last one was called the Pentecost. Now again, remember, the Passover celebrated God's judgment passing over the people of Israel. Okay, so they would put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel of death would skip over them whenever they saw the blood. Now the feast of first fruits, this is really important just to grasp over what's happening here, but the feast of first this mic is terrible today, all that God began to do and teach Okay, it's another way of saying that the first fruits of God's love was given to you for that year. Here's what would happen is that that festival would happen two days after the Passover. And then 50 days later, there was this thing called the Pentecost, which is actually, again, two Greek words, Pentecost, meaning 50 days after. And they would celebrate all that God had commanded. Celebrated two things. The harvest, if somebody can hand me just a wireless mic, I'm going to switch over to that. Um, it, it would celebrate the harvest that God was giving, but it would also celebrate the giving of the Ten Commandments. All right, this should work better. I've never actually done this before. I feel so hip today. I've got like a t-shirt on and a mic. Let, let, let me connect the dots. <laughs> let me connect the dots for you, okay? Listen, Jesus died on the Passover. This is what you see here, that the blood of the doorpost signified Jesus dying in your place to pass over God's judgment for you. And then two days later, on Friday, he would raise from the dead. This is what they were doing. So two days later, this first fruits would be God's goodness to him. And then 50 days later, God ascended into heaven. And this is, this is the connection between God's law that he gave in the Old Testament. And listen, what God is doing through his people now. 
that God's law would be put in you. God used these festivals, here's what's really cool, to bring the nation of Israel together for the purpose of sharing the gospel with people from what, what, what you'll see later is people from every single country in the known world, and then he sent them back out. This is, this is really awesome, important stuff, how God works. All right, verse 2, or the end of verse 4, 1. Then they, the disciples, were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right. We're going to do a little work here. So hang with me. This is going to be, I think it will be really informative for you, but just hang with me. The first thing you'll notice is this. Who did the Holy Spirit fall on? Verse 4. All of them. This is really important, and I want to reiterate the point that I made last week. You see, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells them that the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come, and it's going to come to all of you. Now this right here is the fulfillment of the Spirit. But imagine the scene. Okay, you're sitting in the house, you're with the disciples, and something absolutely magnificent and crazy happens, and Luke doesn't even have words to describe it, so he does the best he can. The first thing he says is the house was filled like with a mighty rushing wind. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you've experienced a mighty rushing wind. I I grew up in Florida, and we had hurricanes every year, and I remember um, we would grow up, maybe not the wisest thing, but we would sit on the back porch and we'd watch the hurricane come through. It would, hit our, it would hit our town, and you would watch the wind, and the wind would howl, and it would move, and it was so powerful that it literally would uproot oak trees, like where you could see the entire structure of the root system falling over onto the ground. It would blow things apart, and this is what they hear. This is what Luke says. It says, the power of the Spirit was so mighty that it sounded like a rushing wind filling the entire house. Now, there's, there's something amazing about this imagery. Okay, let me, let me tell you how this works. Do you remember in, Luke, or in, in Genesis chapter 1, if you've studied your Bible at all, how did God create man? If you remember, he created all things that, by speaking them into being, but it says that he created you different. It says that he breathed life into you, right? Do you remember that? It says that when God breathed life into them, that he created something different and magnificent. Now check this out. Jesus just rose from the dead, and he actually does the same exact thing in the most odd passage in Scripture, which is John 20, 22. So Jesus has just risen from the dead, and he comes to his disciples, and it says Jesus breathed on them. Like, <laughs> like the weirdest scene ever. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what's happening. I want to connect it for you. Wind in the Bible is the same Greek word that you see for breath, which is also the same Greek word that you see for Holy Spirit. Listen, when God comes, he breathes life into you. So picture the scene. All the disciples are sitting there, and they're literally coming together, and God is passing through with his power and breathing the breath of life into all Christ's followers. The only way... The only way that the disciples can describe this is by God's power. It was like in this moment, God shows up and everything changes. And then, and then he uses a second descriptor. He says it's like a divided tongue of fire that rested on them. Again, get the imagery. Listen, every time that God appeared to his people in the Old Testament, he did it through fire. Think about it. When Moses sees God for the first time, where is he? In a burning bush. 
right? When God leads his people out of the nation of Israel, what does he do it with? A pillar of fire. When God actually gives them the law, he does the same thing. He shows up in a pillar of fire, and then, if you remember what I told you, Pentecost would have been a giving of the law again. God is showing up with fire. Here's the point. God's presence is always accompanied by fire, but check this out. I want you to get this. If you write things down, write this down. Fire coming down on the people was an amazing way of God saying that my presence is now dwelling in my people, not outside of them. This is what he's saying. I'm breathing the life of God directly into you. And by the way, I no longer have to show up externally for you to experience me. I actually live deep within you. You don't have to access me through external means anymore. No, my power and my presence is in you. So you see, here's what's happening. Listen, God's presence, it's powerful, and it's no longer external. Listen, because I want you to hear me say this, and this is your reality, guys. If you are a Christ follower, here's the picture. The day at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit or God's presence and his power literally rests inside of you. This is the point that the Bible has been pointing to for the entire time. Like the entire Bible is pointing to every covenant, every promise, everything that God does is pointing to this moment where God himself would come and he would rest on his people. That his people would no longer have to access him through tabernacles or through, through um, sacrifices. But no, you would get God and from the inside out the gospel would change you. Honestly, this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Right? The gospel doesn't say conform to a set of religious standards and I will change you. No, the gospel says God put his spirit inside of you and he will change you from the inside out. It's the most amazing promise ever. You see, you no longer have to wait for fire to come down in order to be in God's presence. You literally have the spirit of God inside of you. The resting place of God is no longer a temple made by man, but a person designed by God. Think about the power of that. This is what the Bible is saying. You no longer have to access God through external means you literally have the power of God inside of you, right? You no longer have to wonder if God is pleased with you because you can experience God because he's in you. Listen, guys, I want you to hear me say this. You are the fire of God. I know that sounds like crazy and weird at times, but this is what he's saying. The breath of life is blown into your hearts and you can set the world on fire. Do you get what he's saying? Look, like, like he's saying that you and I, if we really understand the gospel, inside of each one of us is a little flame that, that, that shines brightly for the world to see. I think about Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. You're a light that shines brightly. Now, now check it out. Here's how the church is so amazing is when your light connects with everybody else's light, it creates this massive flame. Like white hot for the gospel, a few people could change the entire world. And this is what I think you're seeing here. Guys, this is it. You want the presence of God in your life? Look, here's all you have to do is you ask for it, spend time with Jesus and his people, and it's almost like the flame sets the world ablaze in a way that you can never, ever, ever figure out. Why? Not because of what you do, but because God's fire rests in you. So this is what's happening. This is the scene. Look at verse 4, though. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right. Bit of work, right? This is that time when I thought, let's just skip right over this. But do you remember what I told you last week? Do you remember why I told you God gave you his spirit? Here's why. Remember this? God gave you spirit because Jesus makes an audacious claim that says collectively, with God's spirit resting inside of each one of us, we can actually accomplish more than he ever did on earth. 
which would make sense, right? If you think about it, there's over, according to most sociologists, over two or three billion Christians in the world. For whatever you think that means, I'll leave that to you. But three billion people, red hot with the gospel inside of them, can do crazy, crazy things that set the world on fire. But, again, you have to really address the text. So let, let me answer the two questions that I think you're probably asking and the two questions that I think might, honestly, be the thing that's messed the church up for a long time. So let me answer them. Here's question number one. Who gets filled with the Holy Spirit? Who gets filled with the Holy Spirit? Answer, everyone who believes in Jesus. You see, there are a group of people in the world who have hijacked this, and they've made claims like only those who speak in tongues are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? I don't know your church background, but if you've ever been to one of those, you see this. But all the way through the New Testament, every single Christ follower, according to the Bible, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, but again, let me just nuance this a little bit. I think there's a little bit of confusion, not around Holy Spirit, but around the idea of being filled with the Spirit. You see, because here, there's going to be a distinction. In the book of Acts, you're going to see this several times, that all believers have the Spirit. However, there are moments when certain people are filled with the Spirit. That's true, and it even happens today. However, listen, being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts or in the world has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. Let me give you a few examples. Acts chapter 4. Peter is about to preach the gospel, and he's told by the Jewish um, leaders that if you do this, you're going to be imprisoned or killed. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that while Peter stands in front of the council, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach the gospel. Stephen, Stephen's about to get stoned in Acts chapter 6, and right before he's about to get stoned, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preaches the gospel. Okay, you're going to see this in Acts chapter 10 when Peter shares the gospel with a guy named Cornelius who is the first Gentile or non-Jewish person to come to faith. And it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts shows us that Paul does this over and over and over again too. So here's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, it means that there are times in our lives that God gives us an amazing boldness most of the time in the face of persecution to share the gospel. That's important. It's important to note that the Spirit of God is not for the elite few. It's for all of us who are bold enough to share the gospel. So write this down, okay? The Holy Spirit is a gift given to all believers, and the filling of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural gift given when, the, when we boldly are sharing the gospel. That's it. That's what you see all the way through Scripture, is when God gives you the ability to share the gospel with boldness, and I don't know if you've ever been there. Like, it's in that moment where you feel like you get it. And you're, you're passionate about it, and something amazing happens. This is what Paul says is filling with the Holy Spirit, or Luke, sorry. All right, so that's question number one. Easy enough. Question number two, what is speaking in tongues? Might be a little more difficult. Honestly, this is one of the most controversial and weird topics in the entire Bible, right? But since I'm committed to teaching the Bible, I'm going to show you what this actually means. So there are two places in the Bible that you see this idea of speaking in tongues, the first one is in Acts chapter 2. The second one is in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is what most of you guys probably think of as speaking in tongues. Like doing, talking and saying some babble that nobody understands and you're kind of confused. Listen, Acts chapter 2 is by far the most common and what I would say is normative usage of the book of speaking in tongues in the Bible. Now it is true. 1 Corinthians 14 um, does say something different, but here's, here's what I want you to note. Okay, when Paul addresses this prayer language or whatever you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, listen, it's in a rebuke. It's actually negative. He actually says it is dangerous and it can cause people to go away. 
He doesn't say it's bad. He just says that it's not always the best form of doing things. But that's the only time in the Bible that you actually see that type of speaking in tongues show up. Every other time is what you see this word glossé in Greek meaning languages. God's people speaking languages. So in Acts chapter 2, it seems that this is what tongues are. So again, if you're writing down definitions and you take notes, write this down. And I'm going to show you this in just a second. Tongues are having the supernatural ability to speak another language to a group of non-believers in order to share the gospel with them. I know that's a long definition, and if you've got to move on, I'll give you my notes later. But every part of that is really important. Every single part. Here's why. Number one, it's supernatural. It's like God, according to the Bible, giving you the ability to speak Hindi to somebody who doesn't speak English, only speaks Hindi, but you actually don't know that you're speaking that language, and boom, you're able to share the gospel with them. Next, listen, it's a real language. Can I show you how I know this? Look at verse 5. We're going to read through this really quickly. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, listen, from every nation under heaven. We'll get back to this. That's really important. And at the sound, the multitudes came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak, there it is, in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are these all, are not all these uh, speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? See that? Corinthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said they must be filled with new wine. Do you see that over and over and over again, Luke makes it really clear that they are speaking an actual language, and they're pretty perplexed by it, right? Like, it would be like a brother coming in the room, and he's spitting off German, and Tom's like, oh, I understand what you're saying, and and, um, not really, but uh, because Tom already knows the gospel, but that's kind of what it looks like. I mean, listen, these people were so confused that they thought they were drunk. By the way, I love, I love Peter's response in verse 14. He goes, look, brothers, they can't be drunk. It's only 9 a.m. <laughs> that, that's literally what he says. You'll see that in a second. All right, back to the definition. Tongues are spoken, listen, to non-believers in their language when no one else is able to interpret that language. You get the picture? This is what you see in the Bible is mostly all the time speaking in tongues. You're speaking in actual intelligible language to a group of people who don't know the gospel and they don't have access to the gospel and nobody's there to actually tell them the gospel, right? So God gives them the supernatural ability to speak their language for the purpose of sharing the gospel. So let me be super clear. When you read the Bible, here's what I would say. This is the normative way that you see speaking in tongues. It's not speaking a language that's not understandable for the purpose that nobody knows, Although, however, I just want to be really clear and really balanced, that is what 1 Corinthians 14 says. It's just that's the only time that you see it, and Paul is kind of rebuking them for it. Every other time, it looks like Acts chapter 2. So how do we practice speaking in tongues? Well, I would say, like you see in Acts chapter 2, right? It's a supernatural gift that God gives those who take the gospel to people who don't know Jesus in order to share the gospel with them, right? So, Here's the question, or here's your definition one more time. 
tongues is the supernatural ability to speak a real language to non-believers for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And check this out. This should give you absolutely amazing confidence. Think about it. God loves people so much that he wouldn't even let the languages that are barriers in between us keep them from hearing about Jesus. And guys, this stuff happens. Like, I don't know if you know this, but I hear stories from, uh, from missionaries all the time that are telling me that like, people go into villages in South Asia and they're speaking the gospel and they have no clue how they're able to actually talk about that language. I heard last night I was having dinner with our elder team and they were telling me, one of them was telling me about how he was in Colombia and this just happened a few years ago. He was sitting there and he's, they're all praying in English and somebody who does not know how to speak English walks away and she tells the interpreter, I knew every single word that they said and I have absolutely no clue how. I'm just telling you, don't miss the point of Acts. Listen, it's not about tongues. It's about Jesus. All right, it's about people hearing the good news of the gospel, that God would move heaven and earth to take the gospel to people. If a language is an issue, he'll give you the ability to speak a language. If geography is a problem, he'll bring them to you, or he'll find a way for you to go. Hasn't he already proven this? Think about it. Hasn't he already proven it in your own life? You have a story about how you heard about Jesus. Somebody told you. Every single person in the entire world that loves and serves Jesus is because somebody told them about Jesus. Isn't it amazing how time or space or language cannot limit the power of God? And sometimes we think God's not powerful. Think about how powerful it is that God would spread his name across the entire globe. And listen, it started with 11 uneducated men. And now there are billions of people worshiping him. Don't, don't get confused. God is still in control. All right, one more thing I want to show you in this. Luke tells you that these people were all from certain places, right? Did you see the detail? All the names that you don't know if I pronounce correctly or not. All those names. You see that? They're from all over the known world. Think about what I told you last week. Do you remember what Paul ends up doing in the book of Acts? It says that Paul would show up to places like Rome, and he was going there on a missionary journey to tell people about Jesus, and then he got to Rome, and what does it say? The brothers were already there, right? So believers were already there. Check this out. This is really cool. Who were those people, and how did they get there? They were these people from Acts chapter 2. You see that God brought people, ordinary people, from every place on earth together in Acts chapter 2. They heard the gospel, and then they went back home. Listen, the greatest missionary movement, and I need you to hear me say this, the greatest missionary movement of all time did not happen through the professional Christians. It happened through the 3,000 ordinary people who had an experience with God and went back home. My question for you is, do you believe that that's still possible today? Do you understand that you can turn the world upside down because you have the, you have the power of God that rests in you? Do you understand, do you believe that it's not through professional Christians like me that actually take the gospel to the nations? It's through ordinary people who are set on fire by the gospel, who have the amazing work of the Spirit living in them and can do absolutely amazing things. Last week I told you, and you're going to hear me continue to say this, that the greatest missionary movement does not belong to pastors, it belongs to business people like you. Why do I say that? Because guys, I believe that you in 21st century can go places and do things that I never can. I'll be honest, there are countries that I tend to go to a lot that I don't think I'll be able to go to much longer because of the internet. I've seen this happen to my, my friends who got denied visas into countries that you will never, ever, ever get denied into. My friend on the front row who's a physician can go anywhere in the world to places like Saudi Arabia that I will never, ever, ever be able to get in. The question is, is do you believe that God has equipped you, empowered you, and you, my friends, can make an impact on the world? 
Listen, the world's not going to change because a professional gets up and preaches a good sermon. The world's going to change because you're lit on fire by the gospel. And you take it into your neighborhoods and your workplaces and your businesses and your families and all over the globe. So let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is just a story from 2,000 years ago or can you see the power of God still working all around the world? Do you believe that God can use you to change the city? Do you believe he can use you to change the world? And do you, honestly, do you believe that he can use you to change your own life? That's the question. Listen, God can and will use his church when his church believes it. All right? And here's, here, let me just give you a caveat. Believing this isn't a guarantee that you're going to change the world, but not believing it is a guarantee that you never will. You see, Pentecost wasn't an accident. It wasn't. It was God showing you that he will fulfill all of his promises. And he continues to do that. And, and look, there's one more amazing thing about this story that I want to show you. All right? Remember, remember this. Remember that God gives the disciples the Holy Spirit. Remember this gift? That's what he says, that he's going to supernaturally give them the ability to speak different languages for the purpose of spreading the gospel. You remember that? Obviously, we just read it. This is what's really cool. That's a picture of heaven. That's a picture of heaven. Let me show you. One day, there are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Revelation chapter 7 says, from every, from every place on the globe, standing around the throne of heaven, worshiping God. By the way, can I just say this as a side note? If you have any issues at all with people of, every, of other races or whatever, any kind of prejudice at all, you're going to be really, really disappointed when you get to heaven. Just can I just tell you that? Because heaven's going to be full of people from every background, and it's going to be the most beautiful, colorful place imaginable. So check this out. Here's what happens. First time the gospel's preached, it's preached in every language. Do you remember the last time, if you're like a Bible nerd like I am, do you remember the last time the gospel was, or do you remember the last time everybody spoke the same language? Genesis chapter 10. You remember what happened? Genesis chapter 11, we call it the Tower of Babel. You remember what happened in the Tower of Babel? Everybody comes together, the entire world, it says, comes together to try to overthrow God. Right? And then God scatters them and changes all their languages. They all begin to speak different languages. You see, this, according to the Bible, is the power of sin. The power of sin is a power that scatters people. Right? Do you, do you understand this? Sin's most incredible work is isolating and disunifying us. But, literally, listen, the gospel, the gospel brings it back together. See, this is what you're going to see. Um, I'll write this down. When God's spirit comes into God's people, it begins a movement that unifies that which was that which was um, torn apart. You see, th this is what you're seeing. Again, I want to point this out to you. This actually has nothing to do with speaking different, like, tongues. It, it's not to do with tongues. It has everything to do with the power of Jesus and how God brings that which is broken back together. Guys, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside every single Christ follower. The same God that changed the course of history is willingly dying in your place. Listen, he dwells in you. The same unifying power that brought all the languages together is the same power that's present and at work in his church today. You see, the church is supposed to be God's greatest picture of heaven on earth. Here's the picture. Here's what I want you to see. People from every tribe, tongue, background, and language, every diversity, everything that you can think of, from the highest socioeconomic status to the lowest, from white people to black people to Indian people to Asian people, every single person is supposed to come together in the church, listen, and find a unity that cannot be found anywhere else. You see, the greatest mark of a spirit-filled church is not the ability to speak different language. It's the ability to bring unity to the diversity of the world. So here's my question. 
Man, when you turn on the news and everything seems like it's about to fall apart, does the church look like that? Or does it look like a place that your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers that may not look like you or come from the same place that you look like, does it look like a place that they could be safe? Because the power of the gospel is inside of you and it brings a unity that everything in this world seems to tear apart. Right? This is what it looks like. It looks like us putting aside our secondary issues and our primary culture to create a new one. It looks like the tertiary issues that seem to divide us are the things that we're willing to put aside for the sake of the gospel. You've heard me say this before, but one of the things that we have in our membership covenant is this, this quote that we say, we as members of our church are going to covenant together to preserve unity in matters that are non-essential beliefs and preferences so that we don't fight and gossip about those things because the greatest thing that tears apart the church, in my opinion, is the fact that we eat each other alive. And listen, we often do it over stuff that really just doesn't matter. That's the picture. The picture is the church should be the exact opposite of that. Sin is what tears us apart. The gospel is what brings us together. So every tribe and language is together in a unity to where the world tries to tear it apart. We look and we say, that's not us. So brothers, if you're black, if you're white, if you're Asian, if you're Indian, I don't know, fill in your race. Latino, you should feel accepted and comfortable in this room. If you're wealthier, if you're poor, if you're educated, if you're not, I don't care what it looks like because the gospel at the foot of the cross, it's all equal. None of you deserve it. None of you can earn it. None of you did anything to have it. Jesus died in your place for every single one of you to experience his grace. And that, my friends, is what unifies us because, listen, when you understand grace, when you understand that there's nothing in this world that can make God love you anymore and there's nothing in this world that can make God love you any less because it had nothing to do with you and it had everything to do with Jesus dying in your place, that why wipes away every prejudice that you could ever have because you believe that Jesus is greater than the things that divide you. That's what it is. So, let me keep going. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, Since it's only the third hour of the day, give it a few more hours and we'll talk. But this is what Joel uttered through the prophet Joel. Listen, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and on my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter stands up and he tells the crowd what's happening. He says, remember the craziness. Think about it. Imagine. Think about all the crazy things that are happening. It's not because we're drunk. It's because we're filled with the gospel. So Peter, he quotes Joel chapter 2. And listen to what he says in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So he tells them that there's a sign, that you're entering into a new season. Again, we're not going to get into this this week, because next week I'm going to do Peter's sermon in the second part of Acts chapter 2, but he's telling them that they're beginning the last days, that God is beginning to build his kingdom. He's beginning to do the thing that he's been doing since the very beginning. 
You see, one of the greatest tragedies in the church, in my opinion, is that we, we tend to read this book, this amazing book, in segmented passages. Now imagine, imagine that you went home and you grabbed it on your bookshelf, if you're like me, uh, I'm a big nerd and I read a lot, and I, I see this biography on Ulysses S. Grant. Now you say, why do you say Ulysses S. Grant? Because that's what I saw this week when I was writing the sermon as I looked over. And imagine I turned it to page 164 and I just started reading a few pages and I stopped. I would have no clue what's going on in his life, would I? You see, the greatest tragedies in life is that tends to be how we read the Bible. We grab a few passages, we read Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we stop and we segment it. Did you know that the Bible is one complete, amazing narrative telling a story about God's redemptive plan to bring his people back together? Look, I, I can address the Bible in four words. This incredible book, 66 books by 40 different authors over thousands of years, and here's basically what it says. Creation, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything was perfect. He made you in his image to be in relationship with him forever and ever and ever, to be in perfect unity without sin with him forever. Fall, we decided to be our own God. If you've ever been to our membership class, I've told you this, the fall was the greatest discouragement um, of my skeptical mind because I used to think, what in the world could a piece of fruit keep us from God? But if you really read it, it has nothing to do with a piece of fruit. It has everything to do with you and I wanting to be our own God. Here's the way theologians say it, is that sin was birthed in the autonomy of moral man, meaning you're moral, you want to be God, so you figure out a way to displace God. And the, way, the reality is, is the Bible says you haven't stopped doing that yet. You want to be independent, you want to be your own God, and you want to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So creation, fall. Next one is redemption, that Jesus Christ, God himself, would stop chasing after you, and he would put on flesh and do what you can never do. He would die in your place. He would live the life you could never live, die the death you deserve to die. He would raise from the dead in order to unite you back to himself. This is the most incredible story ever told. And the last one is restoration. That one day God is going to come back. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more. And listen, if you actually read Genesis 1 and 2 and you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it's the same exact story. God with his people dwelling on earth the way that it was always supposed to be for eternity where you get to enjoy him and he gets to enjoy you forever and ever and ever without sin. That's what the Bible's telling you, that God created you, you rebelled against him, he redeemed you, and one day he's going to come back and fix all the stuff that you messed up. J.R.R. Tolkien says it this way, one day all the sad things are going to become untrue. And this is what Peter's telling you. Peter's telling you now the process of restoration has started. God's spirit living in you. He's completing his story, and he's doing it through you. That's the most amazing truth ever. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's it. The Spirit now lives inside of you, and every single one of you, no matter who you are, what you've done, can be saved by the power of God. So Peter, Peter's going to preach the most comprehensive, probably, sermon ever. And he concludes the sermon by connecting the dots of how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together, and how they're all pointing to Jesus. And he gets to the end of the sermon that he preaches, and listen to what they say. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. These brothers who had just come and heard the gospel and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other wonders, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who believed his word were baptized, 
And they were added that day to about 3,000 souls. This is the most incredible picture ever. God's spirit rests on you. The gospel is proclaimed. And thousands of people come to faith. So my question, listen, have you heard the gospel? And the answer, that's yes, because I just told it to you. Do you realize that the power of God rests inside of you? Or it can. Listen, there's only one response to when you hear the amazing news of Jesus. The response is it cuts you. Right? You literally can't come away any different than that. All of human history has been working together to bring you to this moment. I believe that. I believe that. I believe that none of you are here on accident. Think about it. I thought about my own story. I was born in a foreign country. I was born in Germany to a, to a family who doesn't believe in Jesus. And I remember we moved to the States, and uh, I was dating a girl, and they invited me to church when I was 16. So I went to church with her, heard the gospel. Um, I got Jesus and didn't get the girl. And then I moved off to college, and I went to northern Illinois. So think about from Florida to, or from Germany to Florida to Illinois, and then I transferred to Georgia Southern. So now I'm in St- Statesboro, Georgia, Harvard of the South. And then from there, um, I'm, I go into ministry in South Georgia, and then I moved to D.C., and then we moved to Durham, North Carolina, and now we're here. And it's not an accident that I'm sitting here on this day telling you about Jesus and imagine your story and how your story works together with my story. And do you not believe that God is working through his people and through his church to bring you to this moment so where you can hear about him, that where your life can be changed and where you can take that and you can write the gospel into somebody else's story? That's it, guys. This is Acts chapter 2. The beauty of the gospel is that God, 2,000 years ago, started a movement that's not done yet. So my question is, do you believe? Do you believe that God is still at work? And maybe you're here today and you need to hear that. What must I do? It's really, really, really simple. And Peter tells you, repent. Repent. All that means is to tell God that you want him to be your savior. That's literally all it means. It's a Greek word. It means to change directions or to change your mind. Basically, you're just basically saying, look, I've tried this. I've tried this for 30 years or whatever it is, and I'm not good at it. So, God, I want you to do it. Repent. And the second thing is be baptized. All your baptism is is your public declaration that you repented. That's what Peter says. See what Peter's saying? In his first sermon, he looks at them and he says, listen, the gospel's for you. It's not for the few. It's not for the proud. It's for you. It's not for those who think they have it all together. It's for you who knows you don't. It's not for you guys who think you have some supernatural ability to speak different languages. It's for you guys that know that you're absolutely bankrupt without Jesus. And you can have it. Oh, and I want you to have it. Peter wants you to have it. Friends, it's yours. It's ours. The gift of God belongs to his church. And City Church, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's my challenge to you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that rests in this room. It's the power that when he breathed, it created. created man. It brought life. And it's in you. Man, can we just stop making excuses about how we're not good enough or how we don't know enough or how we don't have enough or how we are just a small church and a small church plant and a city that needs it? Can we just stop making excuses and can we just believe that God's power rests in us and that's all you need? If you have the power of God in you, listen, you can do more than Jesus. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Because he lives in you, he works in you, and he works through you. So what would it look like, City Church, if we owned it? 
If we own the mission of God and we believed it and we went out, if you did, this week at your company or in your workplace, in your neighborhood, with your kids, you fill in the blank. Because that's our goal. Our goal as a church is to catalyze you to do the things you already do and just do it with gospel intentionality because we believe that you are the greatest movement the world could ever see if you'll own it. So will you do it? That's the question. That's Acts 2. That's where we're going. The church is God's means, his plan A to change the world. And I believe we can do it.